If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. With the publication of today's episode, Heather Yando may be setting a new world record. She will be the only person who has been on the Successful Nonprofits podcast four times. But every conversation we've recorded with her has been incredible, and I am always grateful for the opportunity to sit down and chat. Heather is one of the principal consultants with Third Space Studio, a consulting practice that works with nonprofits around strategic planning, capacity building, facilitation, and coaching. She is also the founder of Nonprofit.ist, an invitation-only marketplace of nonprofit consultants. It offers a more flexible way for consultants to let their work shine, also enabling nonprofits to compare consultants and carefully target which consultants they want to reach out to. Since Heather and I share a lot of experience in nonprofit consulting, I thought we might bring you a conversation about identifying and selecting the best consultant for your next big project. Hey, Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Oh my gosh, I am so thrilled to have you. Like I said, every conversation has just been solid gold with you. And so I'm really excited we get to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is how nonprofits hire consultants. I'd like to start by talking about something that I think you and I probably share similar sentiments about. And that is the blind request for proposals to who knows how many consultants around whatever the project might be. How do you feel about those? Oof. Well, in a word, I hate them. Hate might be too strong of a word. I really dislike them. And I think they aren't all that useful. When they come into my inbox, I will often take a look, particularly if they're from an organization that I've worked with in the past. I really want to reply, but it's often really challenging. What about you? Oh my gosh. Like you, I really dislike blind RFPs. I will also share with you though that I kind of have an auto reply. I programmed it in as a signature. By the way, 
Pro tip, if there's an email you have to send a lot, just create it as a signature in Outlook. And then you choose that signature. So I have a blind RFP signature. And so when I get a blind RFP, I just click that signature box. I put in the name of the organization and I click send. I am really clear that blind RFPs are a waste of the organization's time that's seeking to hire a consultant and also a waste of the consultant's time. I always have felt like the busiest, the best consultants we are too busy to actually respond to blind RFPs. And it's interesting, Heather, because my auto response even says that I'm happy to provide a proposal, but only after I've had the opportunity to meet with leadership and leadership and I agree that I could be a really good fit. If we don't feel that I'm a really good fit, if I don't feel it or they don't feel it, there is no point for me to take my time to put together a proposal. And there's no point for them to read one more proposal out of 10 or 12 if I'm not a good fit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the mentality, at least from what I've heard from leaders, is they want to have an even playing field. So they want to put down in writing what they're looking for. They want to send it out to a number of people to get a lot of proposals. What that actually does is it doesn't create an even playing field. It creates a field where only people who have the capacity to put together a proposal actually do that work. And so you're finding, as you said, the people who aren't as busy, which may not be the best fit for you, or the larger firms that have a person or multiple people whose job it is to respond to proposals. And that may not be the best fit for you. And you and I know that that conversation is really where we get a sense of, What are the real issues? What's being said and what's not being said? Do our personalities mesh? Would we get along in this work? Because that is an important qualification. And it's not just the written. I mean, the subset of things that I dislike the most about written RFPs is we will accept questions only by email till 5 p.m. on Friday. And we will respond to everything with one email. That leaves no room for that important conversation and that back and forth to truly understand what's needed and how to move forward. The other thing I love about those blind RFPs is more often than not, they are very specific about exactly how they want the process to go. And so, for example, sometimes I will see an RFP that will say, we are looking for someone to do strategic planning for us. We expect this is going to be a 15-week process. The following things are going to happen in the first three weeks. And then the follow. And part of what I'm just so baffled by that is almost all of us who are consultants, we have developed a process, a unique process that works for us. And no one process is alike. And that's part of what as an organization you should be looking for is, okay, what's their unique process? How are they good at delivering this product? And does that process work for us? Not, okay, here's the process we've decided we want, and now we want to find a consultant that can run that process. Yes, it's really not taking the most advantage of this expert on the other end. We are experts at strategic planning, at designing processes, at change management, at facilitation, right? So take advantage of us. Don't just have us come and run this process that you did last time or that someone on your board thought would work. I mean, the times when I can clearly see that this RFP is not for me is when it's an eight-page RFP and they want a 10-page response. We are not going to mesh because I know that no process ever goes perfectly as planned, that we have to really pay attention to what's shifting, what is developing, and really think about how to move through the work together. And so oftentimes that kind of rigidness just turns me off as well. 
it's not something that I, I'm going to apply for. It's funny you say that because I've actually said this to some organizations when they ask for a proposal. And obviously, if it's a blind proposal, this is also in my auto response. But, you know, for those that I've met with, if they ask for a proposal, I always say to them that for my most common types of projects, strategic planning, succession planning, coaching, et cetera, I am completely open source on my website. So on my website, I describe the process, I describe the timeline, and I describe the cost. Go and look at that. And if you've got questions, I am happy to fill in the blanks for you. But literally, my proposal is more or less going to be me just taking what's already on the website and putting it in the Word document that already exists for you. I love that idea. I'm actually putting together for nonprofitists right now an article about why RFPs are so terrible and what nonprofits can think about doing instead. But maybe there's also some advice in there for us consultants. Think about how you're communicating your process and how transparent you're able to be. And also, I mean, let me say, I think as consultants, it's a mistake for us to respond to blind RFPs. Kind of what we're doing there, like, we don't know, is an organization actually prepared and ready to start a project? Are they just shopping around and want to get ideas? Do they already have one favorite candidate, but their procurement process, because it's maybe government funded or something like that, requires three or four or five bids? So as a consultant, I just, I've often felt like if it's an organization I don't have a relationship with, a blind RFP is, well, kind of a loss for me. And if I do already have a relationship with them, I just need to call them up and have a conversation before I'm willing to respond. Yeah, I mean, it's the advice we might give to nonprofits who are thinking about applying to a new foundation for funding is don't put together all of the huge grant proposal and budgets and everything before you've even had a conversation with them. Really think about how you balance your time. And so for us, this is like sending in a cold proposal to a foundation, which I wouldn't advise any nonprofit to do. I love that simile, and I think you're 100% right. That is exactly what nonprofits should not be doing when they approach funders, and we as consultants are the same when we're talking to nonprofits. I love that. Because I know you also have a blog post, five questions to answer before you contract with a consultant. So let's talk about some of those. We've really already gotten into so many of them just in this conversation about RFPs because the basic challenges I think that you and I have with RFPs are also a big part of what I see nonprofit leaders stumbling over in some sense when they get in touch with us. So the first question I think it's really important to answer is, what's the real challenge that you want to tackle? Oftentimes, nonprofits know that they can come to us for things like strategic planning, right? It's got a name, it's a thing, your colleague hired somebody to do it, so we can call you to get a strategic plan or board development or a business plan. But I'm always curious to know what's underneath that. What is the challenge or the opportunity or the question you're trying to answer? What's compelling you to get into this right now? I encourage people to think about the challenge you want to tackle. Embedded in that is what you said already, is that it's not necessarily naming the solution. It's not writing out the 15-week point-by-point plan of how you're going to solve that challenge. It's really just saying, here's what we're up against. And it's totally fine to say we want the board to be involved and we want some stakeholder interviews. That's often helpful, but really getting clear about that challenge ahead. And if I can just jump in, I think part of that is also to quote Stephen Covey, not someone I quote a lot, but to start with the end in mind. As an example, if you know you want a strategic plan, what do you want to use that strategic plan for? 
Are you going to be using it with funders and foundations? Are you going to be using it to genuinely guide your growth over the next three to five years? Is there some general end state that you already have in mind? If you start with the end in mind, you can find the consultant that's right to produce whatever project it is that you want done. Absolutely. I mean, the same is true, for example, a fundraising plan. I used to do a lot more fundraising consulting, and sometimes people would call and ask that. And really getting clear about the challenge helps lead to the end. So is it that you need to help motivate and energize your board towards fundraising? Is it that you really have a small development team and you want to keep them on track? Those are two very different outcomes, two very different challenges, and two very different processes. So thinking through all of that, and I love the the end in mind idea. And this is true for a lot of us in a lot of areas. You don't know what you don't know. Maybe you don't know, well, gee, do I need to be working with my board on this or do I need to be working with a fundraising team on that? And so then really the project is first understanding what it is you need to be doing and then working on a plan around that, which is a really different project than putting together just a plan. Absolutely. And oftentimes you and I, as longtime consultants who have some coaching skills as well, really can help ask some questions to dive a little deeper. So you're having some trouble with your board and accountability. Let's talk a little bit more about what's behind that. Let's really think through, because I can come in and do a two-hour training on accountability. That's probably not actually going to solve the problem. And if we get a better understanding of what's underneath it, we can really move forward. Absolutely. And when I was talking about being open source on the website and being really upfront about pricing, I kind of actually say that where I have some off the shelf trainings. And if you already know that what you need is a two hour or four hour board expectation training, I can just come in and do that. And that's not terribly expensive because I've done it a lot of times and I literally can just do it over and over and over again. That's not nearly as expensive as I need you to come in and help me identify what the issues with the board are. And then after you've identified those, create a custom training to help us get where we need to go, as well as maybe some coaching and follow-up work. Like those are very different projects, but without the conversation, I don't know it. Absolutely. So that really bleeds into question number two, since we're talking a little bit about the board. And this I really discovered out of failure. (laughs) So does everyone agree about the challenge and about the need for outside help? So we were just talking about doing work around the board and accountability. Well, if I'm talking to an executive director, what I really want to know is, what does the board chair think is happening? Do they see this as an accountability gap? Do they see this as a problem in that you have too high of an expectation of board members? Do they see it as a challenge in how we're really recruiting and onboarding new members? So what's their understanding of the challenge? And even if you do have the same understanding, are they bought into the fact that you need an outsider to come in and help you address this? Not just that it's somebody from the outside coming in, but you're also going to spend money on it. And is all of that agreed upon? So I have a great story to tell you. This is maybe two or three years ago. There was a legacy organization. And I think of a legacy organization as an organization that's named after someone because it's their legacy. And so there was a legacy organization and their children were on the board and frankly held most of the officer positions on the board. They asked me about a board development project and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, let's sit down and have a conversation. So I walk into the first meeting, it's the staff management team, but none of the family members around that table. 
So I was like, well, this is really interesting, but your board chair and your board vice chair, family members, and they're not here. We've had a great conversation, but let's schedule another meeting where they can be here. So meeting number two, one of the two key family members that are on the board, only one of the two showed up to that other meeting. And so I'm like, well, this has been really interesting, but let's have an additional meeting where you both can be here. And let me be clear that you both have to be here for this next meeting because these are the two key players on the board. If they're not behind it, it's probably not going to happen. And in the first two meetings, I had some red flags because I'm like, yeah, I don't know how committed they are. And in that third meeting, I kind of had this sense that what they really wanted to do is this board development project so they could tell funders they had done a board development project, but not necessarily to actually create any change for the board itself. And so at the end of the meeting, I kind of had to really politely say that. Oh my gosh, Heather, they were so incredibly unhappy. They literally said, was it a money thing? And I'm like, no, it's not a money thing. There could be more money on the table. I still just don't think I'm a good fit because I don't think there's a full commitment to the board changing. Then they pulled out guilt and they started saying, well, we've had three meetings with you and this is wasting our time. And I kind of, yeah. And I really was just like, I regret if you feel like I wasted your time. But all of this was about us deciding whether or not it was a good fit. And either of us can figure that out and go, okay, it's not a good fit. There are some other great consultants out there and they might be a better fit for you. But it really was one of those situations where I just had the sense that the keyboard members that had to be behind the change were not behind the change. Well, good for you for identifying that and really standing your ground on that. It wasn't a good fit for you. That's a real challenge because I have definitely walked into projects where it's clear that they're doing this because a funder has mandated it. Or, I mean, how many strategic plans do we do? Because, well, it's been three years, so it's time to do another strategic plan, which isn't quite the same level, but certainly not understanding that motivation, not having that motivation be shared amongst all of the key stakeholders, whoever they are. Sometimes it's, we really need to get the right staff in the room to be able to have that conversation so that we are all moving forward in the same way. And I'll also just share with you from my perspective as a consultant, and obviously I did not get paid out of this, but the most valuable thing that I could do for them was say, I don't think you're serious about your board changing. Again, I don't get paid out of that, but that's the most valuable thing I could say to them. My colleague says sometimes, we're not paid to be liked. And I have to remember that sometimes is that when I'm in service to something challenging in the organization, I'm really there on behalf of the mission in some ways. And if I have to upset the board chair or call out the executive director, then that's the right place for me to be. That's the right work for me to be doing. I love that philosophy of I'm there for the mission and that's who I'm representing. I love that. Awesome. So what else have you got on that list of five? There are some just really practical things. So the first two were really about making sure you and your team's head were in the game, that you were on the same page so you can really make the most of your engagement with a consultant. We've told a lot of stories, I think, about how it's been a little frustrating or maybe wasted our time. But all of this is about making sure that nonprofits really find the right person for them and get the most out of this engagement. But these next couple are a little bit more about logistics. So what's the timeline for your project? Do you have a clear sense of when it needs to happen? And there's a couple of factors here. One, a lot of times organizations have big pieces of the work already on the calendar. So we've got a board retreat in June, and we need to have this finished by the end of the year. 
those are really helpful. Sometimes that is the deciding factor for me. Same here. There have been times that when I learn what their timeline is, I say, I'm sorry, I'm booked for the next three months. I can start it in four, but we won't do your board retreat or we won't finish the project in the timeline you want. I'm really sorry. Yeah. So sometimes it's those things on the calendar. The other piece is um, organizations typically just underestimate how long anything is going to take. So particularly if you need board engagement, those key volunteers, if you want to do any kind of data gathering from your community, if you want to do volunteer meetings or surveys, it just takes longer than you think it's going to. And so the person who comes and says, we really want a strategic plan done in the next three months, being able to say back to them, let's talk a little bit about what's driving that timeline. And is it adjustable? Or like, for example, if you've got those key board members who are serving on a committee or a work group are they willing to meet every week instead of every other week. And then when you go back and ask them, they're like, oh, no, I did not sign up for every week. I can do every other week. Yes. That gets into another one of the questions to answer, which is very related to this, is what is the board and staff bandwidth you have for doing this work? When people launch a project, oftentimes they think, well, I've hired a consultant and I'm giving them some money, and they're going to go off and do the thing and come back and tell us the answer. And that is 100% not how it works, at least in my world. So really thinking about what else is on your radar over the time period that you're doing this work, knowing that we are going to need information from you, we are going to need meetings with you for you to help us make decisions, to refine things, to brainstorm, all of those pieces are going to take staff and likely board and other stakeholders time. So really thinking about, are you running this during the same time as you are doing a capital campaign, as you are digging deep into race equity work? Is this happening over the same time as you've got several staff members going out on vacation? What is the bandwidth of the organization over this time? And is it appropriate for the level of work we're going to have to do for this project? And also know that the unexpected always happens. You don't know what it's going to be, but you're always going to have a key volunteer who has to step back because of a family emergency or a cross-country move. You're almost always going to have a key staff member who leaves the organization or some other type of crisis like, oh my gosh, our largest funder just pulled out. Or imagine this, the stock market crashed and we weren't expecting that. There's always some type of a crisis that will impact it as well. Always some type of a crisis. And then what you mentioned that kicked this all off is really, really important to remember is particularly when you're dealing with the board, they have a sense of what the commitment they agreed to is. And when we start to pile more and more on them, sometimes they don't react very well, which is completely understandable. So if your board is used to having four half day meetings a year and you want to plop into the middle of that schedule two full day retreats, they may not be up for it. And so really thinking with them about how do you need to shift their work? Are they agreed to this? Why is it important? All of that is critical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the last question is the one that we don't always like to discuss, but is super important. And it's just how much money do you have for this project? What's your budget for the project? Do you ask that in your in early conversations with people? So I do ask it with early conversations, and I'm sure you probably do as well. I do. I usually use some framing around, 
is there a budget I need to be paying attention to? Is there a budget for this work? Just that, if folks say no, that's a good piece of data. So if there's not a budget, sometimes that means the sky's the limit. And sometimes that means I have $500 that I can find from other pieces. But even just that answer is really helpful. And then we can get into what that looks like. The two answers to that question I hear most often are either no or, well, obviously we're a nonprofit, so we want to do this as affordably as possible. So just as affordable as it could be. Typically, that's my response then is, and I'm again, I'm open source on my website. So I'm able to say, well, for this type of project, I typically charge between this amount and that amount, depending how much work you and your volunteers are going to do and how much work I'm going to do. So it's going to be in that range. Is that range going to work for you? Yes. I have a very similar conversation for folks who don't have a good sense of their budget. I do like to have that conversation early on. It's really helpful when people say, we have $10,000 for this work. Of course, we'd like to come in below that, which is always true. That really helps me right-size the solution that we begin brainstorming about. So for some projects, I definitely have a set of activities that we go through, but some of those are a little bit interchangeable. Sometimes we could do a survey. We don't necessarily have to. We could do three focus groups. We don't necessarily have to. So getting that budget early on helps me right size, even in that first conversation, what's possible. I hate it when I build out a gorgeous process with somebody that talks to all of their stakeholders and fits all of their needs. And we get to the end and I discover they have the budget for only half of it. And then we really got to backpedal and figure out how to get there. Having that budget up front will help the consultant that you talk to really know what's possible and give you a better idea. I got to tell you another story. This one was maybe a couple years ago. There's an organization that reached out to me about a pretty good sized project. And I knew they were talking to me. And and by the way, I've been a long-term donor to this organization. So, And I'm still a long-term donor. Be clear, I'm still a long-term donor to this organization. I've probably been giving to this organization every year for about 10 years now. So a couple years ago, they reached out to me and they essentially had a conversation with me about the project. They let me know they were reaching out to me and a couple other consultants, but that they thought I might be a good fit. I talked to them, thought this might be a good fit. We talked budget. I was certainly within the right frame in terms of budget. I put together a short proposal. And when I say short, it was like literally two pages long because I'm pretty open source about everything I do. You can go and look at my philosophy or anything like that online. So I put together a pretty short proposal and sent it over to them. A couple of weeks later, I get a call back and they wanted to let me know that they received three bids. One was for $6,000. One was for about 15000 And then I came in at about 18000 So obviously they were calling to see if I could be flexible on what I would charge. And my very first response is, well, I can tell you right now, you should probably throw away the $6,000 bid because anyone who says they can do this project for $6,000 after expenses is going to be making almost nothing per hour. So you should probably throw that away unless they're a brand new consultant and they're building their book of business, which we've all done. And so then they they might be pretty good. The $15,000 one, if you think they're going to do as good of a job as I would do at 18, you should really bring them on and engage them. Because if you think they're going to do as good of a job or a better job, I don't want your decision to be based on money. I want your decision to be based on fit. So both the $15,000 one and mine, we're in the same range. 
which was the range that you'd indicated was feasible for you. I did not take their top number and plug it into their top number. So I was a couple grand shy, frankly, of their top number. But my take on it is I don't compete based on price. I compete based on the product I can provide and the expertise I have from all the other clients I've served. That's what I compete on. Yes. So that's one other challenge with not having a number out front is you're going to get all kinds of options. So if you say, oh, I don't know, somewhere under $30,000, then you're going to get a 6000 and an 18000 and a 25000 And you're not comparing apples to apples. You're not really having a clear understanding of how to even think about these proposals. Price is not the best way to compare. It really is that, that fit. Conversation approach personality does the fit match and then let the money be secondary. And I will share with you, I mean, the organization I was just speaking of is a multi-million dollar organization. And so really from my perspective, if $3,000 is a deciding factor and you're a multi-million dollar organization, I hope you're really making that decision based on which of the two you think is going to be a better fit. But if you're not, then the cheaper one is definitely the best fit for you. So what happened? They took the cheaper one and I'm still a donor because I love them. I think they do great work. I'm sure I love them and I think they do amazing work, but I will share with you. And and typically we give at the very end of the year. So then when I made my end of year contribution, I actually wrote a note and I know the chief executive personally. So I've always sent my contribution directly to the chief executive. I wrote a note. I put it in a New Year's card because the chief executive gets a New Year's card from me every year. And I just wrote in the note that while I was brokenhearted, they went with the other consultant. I still believe really strongly in their mission and I'm happy to be able to support them and I hope everything's working out. And I think they got a strategic plan they were happy with, but nevertheless, that's really my take on it. I don't compete on price. I just don't. I love that. But I am still a donor. Let me be clear, still a donor. And I still think they do great work and I'm glad they exist in my community. There you go. So those are my five questions. Are there any that you add or you would want somebody to answer when they come talk to you? Typically, kind of what you described, I want people to have a sense of what they're looking for. I want them to have the end in mind, but I also want them to have thought through what kind of a consultant is the best fit for us. Some organizations, knowing who's going to be participating in the process, what they want is a consultant who's going to be very structured and say, okay, you're going to do A, B, C, D, E, and also who's going to herd cats. We'll sit in the meetings and go, well, that's really important and interesting, but let's move that to the parking lot. We'll deal with that later because we all have been a part of those organizations where everything is tangential and you don't get your work done. Typically, those organizations also want consultants who are going to be strong project managers. So they also know then that the volunteers involved are going to need frequent reminders, et cetera. But I just think understanding what personality type you're looking for from your consultant is going to be really important. And let me also say that that consultant, I think, is a very different consultant from one who is a a strong consensus builder. Because oftentimes, herding cats and project management undercuts strong, strong consensus building because people can't just move off in any direction they want as you explore topics and ideas. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, I love that. Like, It aligns with me when you're hiring for a new position. What are the skills and aptitudes that you really need to have in this person? Is it somebody who's very task-oriented, project-driven? Is it somebody who's great at facilitation and bringing out the best? Is it somebody who's really great in crisis or conflict management? Those are very different folks or can be very different folks. And I will also share with you, it is typically my expectation 
that, and I hate to say, I almost said a good client, but that's not the right phrase. It is typically my expectation that a judicious client, a client that's a good steward of their resources, not just financial, but time. Because when you embark on a project with a consultant, it's your time and your volunteer's time always wants to check my references, always wants to know, hey, who else have you done projects like this for, whether it's transition planning or strategic planning or fundraising planning, whatever. Who else have you done this type of project for and can we call them? I'm adamant that a good, an organization that's being judicious with their resources will do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great point. I do always try to provide my references and I want you to check them. I want you to talk to folks and see what it's really like to work with me. Yeah. And I'll share with you, typically what I say is, well, I'm pretty open source about who my clients have been. Although admittedly, we've not updated in about a year. So we need to update our client list on the website. But I pretty much typically say, go to the website. You can see clients and project summaries. Let me know who you want to talk to and I'll give you contact information. So I'm not even going to pick and choose and go, oh, well, I know whatever Gloria is going to say great things about me. Just pick a client or three or four or five. I'll give you their contact information. I'll do a virtual introduction. Love it. Love it. Great idea. Heather, I want to save time for the off the map question. It is difficult to come up with good off the map questions for you because this is your fourth one. Here's what I've got though. I know that you created a giving circle. And I don't think everyone in the nonprofit sector is familiar with giving circles. So tell us about yours. Oh, I love this question. I always love a chance to talk about our giving circle, which is called the Beehive Collective. So a giving circle at its core raises and gives money away. So the simplest, simplest version of this is you and five friends get together and you talk about who you might want to give to and you all write a check to the same organization. So instead of getting one check for $100, you might get five checks for $100 to a nonprofit. There's many different versions of this. The Beehive Collective, we each pledge to give half a percent of our income. So if you make $50,000 a year, that's $250 that you would pledge to give. Many of our members, most of us are women. Many of us, at least when we started 10 years ago, were young. And so for a lot of us, that was our biggest ever gift was $250 or, or whatever it was for us. We then became grant makers in our community. So we put out a request for proposals we have a wonderful committee who did that, who did site visits, and they would bring us the top three proposals to a, a grant-making meeting at the end of every year. And I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. We only gave to organizations that were doing good work in Raleigh. We picked a different theme every year. I love that. I have actually never thought about starting a giving circle, but now I'm curious about joining a local giving circle. So I'm going to have to Google local giving circles and see how I might be able to join. Yeah, you absolutely should. Well, Heather, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Our listeners always want to know how to reach our guests. And there are a couple of websites, listeners, that you should check out. The first is Heather's Consulting Practice at thirdspacestudio.com. Let me be clear, there's no S on the end of that, thirdspacestudio.com. You should also check out her nonprofit consulting marketplace, nonprofit.ist. That's nonprofit. .ist. It is an excellent resource if you are looking for an expert consultant. And let me say it's invitation only. So you know that if someone is on that website as a consultant, there has to be some other consultants who think they're doing good work. 
Now, finally, we'll also link to Heather's LinkedIn page. It's a great way for you to connect with her as well as from the other two websites. Heather, it is always such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And we're going to link to the three prior episodes that you have been on. Having said that, though, over the next two months, we're going to be deleting our first 55 episodes. So unfortunately, two of your episodes are going to be going away to the universe. So listeners, this may be your last opportunity to hear two great episodes with Heather. But the reason that we are deleting those episodes is that the early sound quality pairs in comparison to the episode sound quality today. And so it has reached the point that we just, I can't stand by the sound quality. I also, though, don't want guests to feel like we threw them under the bus. They took a risk at us when we had hundreds of downloads and not way, way more downloads than that now. So... That's why we're having some guests come back on and make sure that we are keeping their voice on the podcast. So Heather, I am so grateful and glad that we had this opportunity to do what I'm now calling a makeup episode with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to come back for number five. Now, if you have been fully engaged, scribbling down notes that will become an RFP that you will blindly send to two dozen consultants... First of all, hit rewind and go back and listen to how we started this podcast because that was a mistake. Second, I'm going to remind you, if that's what you're doing, you will not find the right consultant with a blind RFP. So instead, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com for the links to Nonprofit.ist as well as the link to Third Space Studio. If you go to those two links, you will probably find some of the resources necessary to help you find a great consultant for your project. Now, in every episode, I have an ask for you as our listener. And if you have not already connected with me on LinkedIn, please take a moment to connect with me there. And if you have deep personal objections to LinkedIn and the way they use data, then please rate and review the podcast in your streaming app of choice. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.